Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the first two chapters of The White Horse King, The Life of Alfred the Great by Benjamin Merkel. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the rest of the book on Canon Plus. Chapter 1, Holy Island. Behold the church of St. Cuthbert, splattered with the blood of the priests of God, plundered of all its treasures, a place more venerable than anywhere in Britain is given over to pagan nations for pillaging. Alquin to Ethelred, king of Northumbria. In the year Anno Domini 937, Athelstan, king of the English people, stepped resolutely onto the battlefield of Brunambur leading the might of the Anglo-Saxon nation out to face the combined forces of Vikings and Picts in what would be referred to by successive generations as the Great Battle. King Athelstan, grandson of Alfred the Great, stood at the head of the Saxon forces as they heedlessly hurled themselves at the spear-ready line of the awaiting Danes and Picts. A thundering tumult the Saxons came, a reckless battering ram of mortal flesh, propelled by the passion and zeal of the king, whose fierce commands mounted up above the din and clamor of the chaotic charge. The linden shields of the Viking marauders split and shattered under the raging crush of the Saxon force. The Northmen faltered and staggered backward, yielding ground and, more importantly, leaving a number of gaps ripped through the center of their defensive wall. With drawn swords and blood-curdling yells, the Saxon warriors seized the opportunity and surged through the freshly torn gap in their enemy's wall. They poured through the defensive line, rent by their charge, like floodwaters through a breached dam, overpowering the stunned Vikings with sharp sword edge and cruel blunted hammer blows. The Norsemen and their picked allies attempted to withdraw quickly in a desperate endeavor to regroup at a distance and make one more try at repelling the Anglo-Saxon assault. The tenacity and discipline of the Saxon troops had been carefully groomed over three successive generations of incessant battle against the pagan invaders. They left no room for retreat, no space for an orderly withdrawal. Into the lines of the Vikings and the Picts they continued to surge, fighting fiercely, hewing down the astonished defenders with sword and axe. The Viking shield wall had been shattered. The nature of the combat shifted. Now the battlefield was no longer controlled by the two large, distinct armies. Instead, it was bedlam, a chaotic quilt of thousands of small skirmishes with no rhyme or reason but rage and terror. On the warriors fought, man against man here, and two against one there. Soon the morning sun, God's bright candle, was looking down at the once green slopes of Brunambur, now painted red with the blood of the fallen. Sensing the inevitability of their defeat, the entirety of the Viking army began to flee, running from the battlefield, wide-eyed and terror-stricken, abandoning the corpses of their fallen. But the Saxon press was unrelenting, and they pursued their vanquished foes hard across the countryside and into the surrounding woods. By sunset, the Danes and the Picts had been entirely routed, and King Ethelstan, with his exhausted and bloodied troops, stood as the clear victor of the battle. This triumph made him the first Saxon king to be able to claim lordship over the whole of Britain, having driven the Vikings entirely from the island and having won the submission of the Picts and the Welsh. This battle also marked the end of a war against the Danish invaders that had begun many decades before Athelstan's birth, a war that had been fiercely fought by Athelstan's father Edward and his grandfather Alfred. 
And though Athelstan was privileged to be the king standing victorious at that final battle, his great victory on the bloody fields of Brunanburh was only a small part of a much greater campaign waged by his predecessors. Athelstan would be remembered for winning the great battle, but his grandfather Alfred had set into motion the events that culminated in this victory, feats that ensured Alfred would always be remembered as the great king, Alfred the Great, King of Wessex. In the year AD 849, Osburh, the wife of Aethelwulf, King of Wessex, the Anglo-Saxon kingdom in the southwest of the island of Britain, gave birth to the king's fifth son during a stay at the small royal estate in the town of Wantage, on the northern edge of the Wessex border. Alfred was the last child born to Aethelwulf and Osborne, his oldest brother being more than twenty years older than him. With so many brothers between him and his father's crown, it was quite unlikely that Alfred would ever ascend to the throne of Wessex. Alfred grew up roaming the countryside of Wessex alongside his father, who regularly journeyed throughout the many towns and cities within his kingdom. Sometimes on horse and sometimes on foot, Alfred learned the network of Wessex's old Roman roads, still used by the Anglo-Saxons. As they visited each city, Alfred's father and his advisors busied themselves with ensuring that the governing and taxation of the people had been competently managed. It was often a dull and dreary business, but the monotony of these bureaucratic chores was offset by the entertainments of the Saxon court. There were the hunts, for which Alfred would have a particular fondness throughout his life. There were falconry, foot races, and horse races. There were wrestling, archery, sword fighting, and spear throwing. There were feasts with guests from afar, travelers, seafarers, experienced warriors, priests, traders, mercenaries, pagans, scholars, bishops, thieves, and princes. But most exciting of all, there were the poets. Alfred always had a particular fondness for the poetry of his native tongue. Late into the evenings, the Anglo-Saxon men would sit in the mead hall around a blazing fire, with their bellies full of roasted meat. The mead was poured out for each man from a gilded bullhorn, and the enchanting thrumming of the shop on his lyre began. The songs Alfred heard in the mead hall as a boy intoxicated him. He was held in thrall by the stories of men charging grim-faced and stoic into battle. He was pierced by the lament of loss when lovers and lords were cut down by cruel blades or swallowed up by icy waves, and dequivered with a chilly awe when mortal men willingly sacrificed their lives for the sake of nobility and honor. Alfred's mother offered a small book of poetry to the first of her sons who would commit the volume to memory. Though the book may have been small, the gift was a treasure, a small collection of Anglo-Saxon poems, carefully handwritten on pages cut from calfskin. The opening page was dazzling, with bright colors ornamenting the first letter of the first poem. Alfred, unable to read the book for himself, was fascinated by the beauty of the volume and jumped at the opportunity. He immediately took the book and found someone who could read the poems to him, so that he could commit them to memory. Soon he returned, recited the entire contents of the volume, and collected his prize. Lindisfarne Island lies off the northeast coast of England, just south of the Scottish border. It is a tidal island. When the tide is low, a narrow causeway connects Lindisfarne to the English coast, turning the island into a bulbous peninsula attached to the Northumbrian shore. But when the tide is high, the causeway is swallowed by the North Sea, and Lindisfarne becomes an island, the thousand-acre Holy Island. It is the epitome of seclusion. Cold and gray, the air chilled by wind and wave spray, filled with a cry of gulls and a palpable sensation of northernness. The island had been made famous during the later half of the 7th century by the great bishops Aidan and Cuthbert, 
whose austere piety had nurtured the faith of the early Anglo-Saxon Christians and had set an example of Christian living that would become the epitome of early English godliness. During the following century, the stories recounting the godliness of Cuthbert and the miracles wrought by his relics grew into legends, and the legends, in turn, were embellished into awe-inspiring epics. As the fame of those saints and their holy island grew, however, the spiritual discipline of the monastery they had established there sadly began to languish. First, the stricter elements of the monastic regime handed down by Aidan and Cuthbert were neglected. Then, slowly, the austerity of Lindisfarne turned to slackness, and its piety turned to worldliness. This slow decline of the Christian zeal of the monks was so gradual that, like the change in the tide on the Northumbrian coast, the shift was probably imperceptible at first. But this spiritual decline was punctuated with such a calamitous blast that the story of God's dreadful judgment on Lindisfarne was soon more famous than the story of God's blessing on that holy island. An Anglo-Saxon historian gave this description of the year A.D. 793. In the year 793, terrible portents came over the land of Northumbria and miserably afflicted the people. There were massive whirlwinds and lightnings, and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air. Immediately after these things, there came a terrible famine, and then a little after that, six days before the Ides of January, the harrowing of heathen men miserably devastated the Church of God on Lindisfarne by plunder and slaughter. Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for the historian who recounted these events, as he looked back on the year 793, it was easy to interpret the significance and import of these mysterious signs. Whirlwinds and lightning, famines and dragons, all nature had been summoned as a portent for the coming judgment. The description of this particular Viking raid is rather brief and gives none of the details of the notorious sacking of Lindisfarne, but a good deal can be inferred from other Viking raids. Lindisfarne was probably chosen as a target since churches and monastic communities offered the prospect of great wealth with very little protection. In the following years, monasteries throughout Britain and Ireland would fall prey to the Viking raids. The Vikings came from the sea, arriving in a handful of their longboats with little or no warning of their approach. Their shallow-drafted ships were beached on the shore of Holy Island and then pulled far enough up the shore to be safe from the tide for several hours. The monks, merely puzzled for the moment, washed from within the walls of the monastery. Then, once the ships were secured, the Vikings turned to the monastery. It is unlikely that they met any resistance as they approached. No barrage of arrows and spears. No shield wall. Not even an armed guard. After gaining an easy entrance, the raiding party plundered the monastery of whatever portable wealth could be found, hacking to pieces whatever feeble resistance the monks may have made. Gold, silver, and jewels were seized and hauled back to the beached longboats, as well as any captives who might be sold on the slave market. They struck swiftly and ruthlessly, and then they quickly fled before any counterattack from a neighboring village could be mounted. Throughout their time in Anglo-Saxon England, the secret to the Viking's success would be the cunning selection of weak but wealthy targets and the hasty retreats, avoiding confrontation with the consistently slow to mobilize military forces. Early descriptions of Viking attacks seized on the fact that Vikings made religious communities their targets of choice. According to the historians of the time, these marauding Northmen were pagan enemies of God, demonic forces at war with the Christian church. Some contemporary accounts describe the raiding Viking armies merely as pagans or heathens. They coated the walls of the holy places with the blood of the saints and had no regard for the sacred things of the Christian church. Modern scholarship has felt burdened to counter this bias 
with an attempt toward a more impartial verdict. Now it is often pointed out that the Viking selection of monasteries and churches for a prey was purely economic pragmatism. Christian churches simply provided the greatest possible gain at the lowest possible cost. The Viking attacks were driven not by a hatred of Christianity, but by a cool and calculated evaluation of the Anglo-Saxon economy. So, considered from the perspective of the Northmen, who were not aware that the sacking of Christian holy places might be taboo, these were perfectly viable targets. It is unlikely, however, that the monks of Lindisfarne were unaware of this other perspective. The role of the pagan raiding army had been played once before on the island of Britain, when several centuries before the Viking raiders, the Angles and the Saxons themselves had crossed the English Channel. Unconverted and bloodthirsty, these once pagan tribes had abandoned their homes in modern northern Germany and Denmark in the 5th and 6th centuries, and had crossed over to the Isle of Britain preying upon the weaknesses of the natives who had been left vulnerable by retreating Roman troops. It was the establishment of the Christian church that turned the Anglo-Saxons away from a worldview that had been every bit as ruthless and cruel as the worldview held by the Viking raiders. The missionaries sent by Rome to Christianize the various warring Anglo-Saxon tribes had preached against and even given their lives in the fight against this very worldview. Even after an Anglo-Saxon church had been firmly established, the English constantly had to fight the temptation to slip back into its own barbaric past, a godless past ruled by the worship of raw power. Threads of this old worldview remained woven throughout the poetry and songs of the Anglo-Saxons. There can be no doubt that when the Anglo-Saxon church named the Viking raiders pagan, they did not mean people who have a different value system than we do. They meant pagan in its most proper sense. These raiding armies were full of warriors who acted like men without the gospel. It was a worldview known all too well by the men who named it as such, and it was a worldview they had rejected. News of the sacking of Lindisfarne spread quickly. Alcuin, a native of Northumbria who was serving abroad in the court of Charlemagne, heard of the tragedy and wrote to Ethelred, king of Northumbria. In his letter, Alcuin took his inspiration from the prophets of the Old Testament, who warned Israel to turn from her sins before God sent an even greater judgment. For nearly 350 years, we and our fathers have dwelt in this most beautiful land, and never before has such a terror appeared in Britain, such as the one that we are suffering from this pagan nation. Nor was it thought that a ship would attempt such a thing. Behold the church of St. Cuthbert, splattered with the blood of the priests of God, plundered of all its treasure. A place more venerable than anywhere in Britain is given over to pagan nations for pillaging. The heritage of the Lord has been given over to a people who are not his own. And where the praise of the Lord once was, now is only the games of the pagans. The holy feast has been turned into a lament. Carefully consider, brothers, and diligently note, lest this extraordinary and unheard of evil might be somehow merited by the habit of some unspoken wickedness. I am not saying that the sin of fornication never appeared before among the people. But since the days of King Elfwold, fornications, adulteries, and incest have inundated the land, such that these sins have been perpetrated without any shame, even against nuns who have been dedicated to God. What can I say about greed, robbery, and perverted judgments? When it is clearer than daylight how much these crimes have flourished everywhere, and it is witnessed by a plundered people. Alcuin wrote a second letter to Higbald, the bishop of Lindisfarne. Again, his letter sternly admonished the Christians of Lindisfarne that a disaster of this magnitude must be answered first and foremost with repentance, lest further catastrophe follow. 
What confidence can there be for the churches of Britain if St. Cuthbert, with such a great number of saints, does not defend his own? Either this is the beginning of some much greater anguish, or the sins of the inhabitants have demanded this. Clearly it has not happened by chance, but it is a sign that this was well deserved by someone. If there is anything that must be set right in your grace's behavior, correct it swiftly. But whatever response the Anglo-Saxons mounted, it was far too little and too late. The Vikings had tasted the undefended plenty of England, and would soon return in greater and greater numbers. Rather than an unheard-of tragedy, the Church of St. Cuthbert, splattered with the blood of the priests of God, would soon become an all-too-common scene throughout ninth-century Britain. The year after the sacking of Lindisfarne, Vikings struck Jarrow, another monastic community far down the coast, to the south of Lindisfarne. The next year, Iona was plundered, and so on. Initially, the raiding parties consisted of small Viking bands traveling in as few as two or three ships, but occasionally, parties came in larger fleets numbering as many as several dozen. The design of the Viking warship, perfected during the 8th century by northern sailors and shipwrights while transporting trade cargo along the Scandinavian coasts, played a significant role in the success of the raids. In the 19th century, the excavation of a burial mound on a Norwegian farm in Gokstad revealed the remains of a mid-19th century Viking ship, giving a likely example of the kind of vessel that prowled the Anglo-Saxon shores. The Gokstad ship has a length of 76 and a half feet and a width of 17 and a half feet. The ship was clinker-built, meaning the hull was formed out of overlapping oak planks, joined with iron rivets and sealed with a caulking of tarred animal hair. Each layer of oak plank is called a strake, and the Gokstad ship was built of 16 strakes. The nine lowest strakes would have been submerged when the ship was afloat. Though the draft of the ship was deep enough that the vessel could maintain a steady course in the heavy gales of the open seas as it sailed to Britain, the Gokstad ship would have generally required no more than a depth of three and a half feet of water to float freely. This meant that, in addition to being able to safely cross the North Sea loaded with plunder, the ship could be rowed up the shallow rivers that pierced deep into England's countryside without running aground. The 14th strake held 16 oar holes per side, for a total complement of 32 oarsmen. Rowing would have been resorted to only occasionally, however, as the boat depended primarily on its sail for propulsion. The men of the 9th century Viking raiding party could leave their Scandinavian homes after the crops had been planted and the ice on the seas had melted. Then, traveling under the power of sails, their ships would reach the British shores within a matter of weeks. They could begin plundering along the coastline, or could pierce deep into the heart of England, searching out the tributaries of the larger rivers like the Umber or Thames, switching to rowing when the winds failed. The Vikings would beach their ships just outside the walls of their target, rarely looking for targets very far from the waterways, which offered a hasty retreat. After striking their target and seizing whatever portable wealth could be found, they would then return to their ships and vanish, long before any force could be mustered to strike back. The Vikings then returned triumphant, laden down with booty and plunder, just in time to harvest their now fully grown crops. Soon the stories of these horrific raids were reported throughout all of England. Every monastery and abbey, every marketplace, and every mead hall heard the haunting tales of the savage Viking attacks. Even Alfred, the young prince of Wessex, could not have been unaware of the nightmarish accounts of the pagan barbarians and their bloody raids. Nevertheless, Alfred's earliest years were relatively unaffected by the intermittent Viking raids. The story of the savage Northmen, 
was just another thrilling feature of life growing up in the royal court of Wessex. More likely than not, the gory accounts of the Danish attacks added more to Alfred's daydreams than to his nightmares. Alfred's biographer, a Welsh monk named Asser, later wrote that Alfred's parents had a particular fondness for him, an affection that exceeded their love for their other sons. Since Alfred was probably around 25 to 26 years younger than his oldest brother, this would imply that his mother Osborne was well into her 40s when Alfred was born. At a time when the average person did not live past the age of 32, Osborne must have felt like Sarah from the Bible, old and well stricken in age, ceasing to be after the manner of women. Genesis 18:11. It is quite likely that Alfred, the son of her old age, did hold a special place in the affections of his mother. His company was enjoyed enough that he was included in all the journeys of the royal court, a fairly exceptional practice at that time. The young boy's zeal for Anglo-Saxon poetry must have also endeared him to his mother. In the year A.D. 853, at the age of four, Alfred was sent by his father on a lengthy pilgrimage from Wessex to Rome, the holy city and the threshold of the apostles. Despite the prince's youth and the fact that he was fifth in line from the throne, Ethelwolf hoped the appearance of his young son in Rome would win the favor of the pope for the king and his nation. This trip must have had a lasting impact on Alfred, even at the age of four. The journey took the young boy across the English Channel, crossing from Canterbury to Calais. In Calais was the beginning of a well-traveled path known as the Via Francigena. This route was formed by a series of connected roads leading pilgrims all the way to Rome, a road that Alfred's company most likely followed. This path broke the journey into some 80 stages, with each stage requiring a journey of approximately 13 to 15 miles. The trip was treacherous. Danes were raiding up and down the Frankish river systems, and Saracens had only recently been driven away from the gates of Rome. When travelers were not avoiding enslavement and slaughter at the hands of large pagan armies, they were running from smaller murderous bands of robbers who hunted the pilgrims' paths for easy wealth. The route led all the way south through modern France, crossing the Alps and Switzerland, and then into Italy. Travelers along the Via Francigena stayed in a series of hostels, inns, churches, and monasteries, which had sprung up along the route to serve the needs of tired travelers. One of these small monastic communities in northern Italy ran a hostel in the town of Brescia. The monks of this particular monastery maintained a record of the various guests who had been given lodging in the hostel, a record preserved to this day with the scrawled signature Alfred among its 9th century Anglo-Saxon guests. After the several months' journey of more than 1,000 miles, Alfred and his noble company arrived in Rome, the threshold of the apostles, a city of dazzling wealth, sophistication, and architecture far beyond anything Alfred had seen in Wessex. Here stood the Pantheon, the Colosseum, and countless other architectural relics of the Roman Empire, awe-inspiring even in their decay. But another Rome had risen out of those pagan ruins, the Christian city. And this city was still very much alive. Here Alfred could worship in the basilicas of St. Peter or St. Paul, both built over the graves of their respective apostles. Both basilicas rose more than 100 feet, and must have dwarfed any of the Anglo-Saxon buildings Alfred had ever seen. St. Peter's Basilica had been the site of Charlemagne's crowning as emperor a little more than fifty years before. But there was yet another Rome that must have caught Alfred's eye. Only ten years before Alfred's visit, Rome had been sacked by Saracen invaders who had plundered the city, including both the basilicas of St. Peter and St. Paul. As a result of this, Pope Leo IV had begun to refortify the city. The old city defenses had left the basilicas outside of the city's protective walls, making them easy targets for plundering. During the last Saracen invasion, 
The altar of St. Peter's had been stripped of more than 200 pounds of gold. Only a couple of years before Alfred's arrival, a new defensive wall had been completed, surrounding the city and providing protection for the vulnerable basilicas. This new wall marked off what would become known as the City of Leo, named for the Pope who had constructed the new defenses. As the boy Alfred was shown through the city and the new city walls were pointed out to him, the daydreams of fortifying a city against hostile invaders were planted in his imagination. Alfred's stay in Rome was brief. Once their task was accomplished and they had met Pope Leo IV, who confirmed him, taking him as a spiritual son, the company of Anglo-Saxons was soon heading north, back up the Via Francigena. By the year AD 854, Alfred had returned to Wessex and had suffered a terrible loss. Death had taken his oldest brother, Ethelstan, and his mother, Osbur. The death of his brother was not a significant blow for Alfred. Ethelstan was more than twenty years older than Alfred, and had already been serving as a sub-king in place of his father over the kingdoms of Kent, Surrey, Sussex, and Essex. He had been absent for all of Alfred's life, so Alfred was not terribly attached to him. But the death of his mother, Osbur, must have shaken the boy Alfred profoundly. At this time, Alfred's father, Ethelwulf, began to turn his mind to more eternal questions. The death of a son and of his wife, as well as his own advancing years, focused his thoughts on his mortality. As he considered his impending death, he was gripped by questions about the state of his soul. It was time to sort out a few things. During an Easter feast at the royal estate in Wilton in AD 854, Ethelwulf announced a significant gift, an unprecedented royal tithe. In front of his four surviving sons, a handful of bishops and other churchmen, and a collection of his noblemen, the King of Wessex declared that he would give one-tenth of all his properties to the church, for the praise of God and his own eternal salvation. Then spurred on by the stories that his youngest son had related, Aethelwulf announced his intentions to make a pilgrimage to Rome. Aethelwulf made the necessary preparations for his journey, and arranged for the governing of his kingdom in his absence. Aethelbald, now the oldest of the sons, would rule Wessex. Aethelbert would rule the regions that Aethelstan, his now deceased older brother, had ruled as a sub-king, Kent, Surrey, Sussex, and Essex. It is not clear what role Aethelred, Aethelwulf's fourth son, played. But, as further proof of his favored status, Alfred was selected to stay by his father's side and to travel with his father on a pilgrimage to Rome once again. Once they entered the kingdom of West Francia, they were welcomed and entertained by the king of the West Franks, Charles the Bald. Charles also appointed a guide to lead them on the remainder of their trip, a monk named Markward, who accompanied them all the way to Rome. From Charles they passed to his brother, Emperor Lothar, and from Lothar to Rome. Only a few months before their arrival in Rome, however, Pope Leo IV had died, and all of Rome had fallen into a bitter dispute about his legitimate successor. The clergy of Rome had appointed Benedict III, while the Carolingian Emperor Lothar had appointed a man named Anastasius. Alfred and Aethelwulf arrived in the midst of this ecclesiastical feud and the rioting that it inspired, although Benedict III was finally recognized as the legitimate pope shortly after their arrival. This time, the party of Anglo-Saxon pilgrims stayed in Rome for an entire year. There were more than 100 churches to visit and countless architectural feats to admire. And even though he was a young boy at the time of this visit, Alfred would still recall the buildings of Rome decades later and mention them in his writings. Aethelwulf, as King of Wessex, recognized his own particular responsibility for the Scola Saxonum and worked to restore the buildings that had been damaged in a recent fire. And of course, Aethelwulf spent time paying his respects to the newly installed Benedict III. 
The King of Wessex knew how to demonstrate his affections for the Pope. He gave Benedict a golden crown weighing four pounds, bowls, beakers, various garments, and a beautiful sword crafted in the Anglo-Saxon style, with gold inlaid into the blade in a mesmerizing pattern. After presenting these gifts, Aethelwulf then went out and threw gold and silver coins to the crowds. This scene, the image of a king as a munificent gift-giver, became a foundational picture for Alfred of what true royalty looked like. It confirmed everything he had heard in the poetry of his native tongue about the importance of being a generous lord, a ring-giver, as the poems would describe the legendary masters of old. After the Anglo-Saxon royal party arrived back at the court of Charles the Bald and Verberie sur Oise, Aethelwulf announced his intention to take a new bride, Judith, Charles' twelve-year-old daughter. A marriage to the great daughter of Charlemagne would ally Wessex with the most powerful family on the continent, shoring up his own authority and legitimacy throughout the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of England. Charles demanded that his daughter be received not only as the wife of Aethelwulf, but also as the Queen of Wessex. Though it might seem to go without saying that the wife of the king would naturally be the queen, this was not the case in Anglo-Saxon Britain. Not since the infamous Queen Edbur, wife of the Wessex king Bortric, had there been a queen of Wessex. Edbur, in an attempt to control her husband, had worked to drive off the noblemen and advisers who surrounded him with her slanderous worm tongue. When defamation and gossip didn't work, she turned to murdering them with poison. One day she filled a poisonous cup for one of her intended victims and had it mistakenly given to her husband, King Bortric. After his death, Edbur was driven from the kingdom. The cautionary tale of Edbur gave the later kings of Wessex cause for hesitation in crowning their wives as queen. Thus, the kings of Wessex took wives, but shared no royal authority with them and did not call them queens. The Wessex crown was meant to be passed on the spear side and not on the spindle side, meaning the power was to be passed through male heirs and not through female heirs. But Charles insisted that Judith be anointed as queen, and Aethelwulf, desperate for the political alliance, consented. From the raiding of Lindisfarne in AD 793 until well into the 9th century, the Viking raids continued to grow in intensity and regularity. Additionally, in the 9th century, the nature of the raiding parties began to shift. At first, a Viking band might be filled with an assortment of farmers and craftsmen, men who saw joining a raiding band as a two-month diversion from their regular work, a diversion that offered a bit of wealth and adventure. By the middle of the 9th century, however, the Viking ships were filled with professional warriors, men who considered plundering and pillaging as their life's calling. It is difficult to determine what caused this shift. Many suspect that the Scandinavian regions experienced a shortage of available farmland during this time due to either an overly abundant population, polygamy was common in Viking tribes, or changes in the weather patterns that rendered some of the Viking farmland unusable. Regardless of the cause, the year AD 865 was setting up to be a formidable one for Alfred's father, King Aethelwulf and his new bride. Chapter 2. The Blood Eagle Then King Edmund, the brave man that he was, said, I do not desire nor wish that I alone survive after my beloved thanes have been fiercely slain by these pirates in their beds, along with their children and wives. I never was the sort to take flight, and I would rather, if necessary, die for my own nation. God Almighty knows that I will never falter from his service, nor from loving his truth. If I die, I live from Elfric's Life of St. Edmund. In AD 865, a Viking army invaded Britain, an army unlike any of the preceding raiding bands, an army that was uninterested in quick plunder, an army set on long-term conquest. 
Three Viking brothers commanded this great army, Ivar the Boneless, Hafdan, and Uba. According to some later legends, these three warriors had come to avenge the death of their father, Ragnar Lothbrok, or Ragnar Harry Breaches, who was said to have failed in an earlier invasion of Northumbria. The Northumbrian King Ayla had captured Ragnar, and had him thrown into a pit of poisonous snakes. As Ragnar died, he cried out, how the little pigs would grunt if they knew what was happening to the old boar. Before his failed attack on Northumbria, Ragnar had led a raiding party up the Seine River, into the heart of Charles the Bald's West Francia. Ragnar's Vikings encountered a minimal amount of resistance from the retreating Frankian military as they plundered their way to Paris. The Frankian forces retreated behind the fortified walls of monasteries, such as the Monastery of Saint-Denis, and watched in horror as the Vikings tortured and barbarically executed the captured Frankian forces, to the delight of the pagan raiding army. Ragnar and his men were eventually turned back, though it wasn't a fear of the Frankian army that prompted the Vikings' departure. Charles paid a hefty sum of 7,000 pounds in silver and gold to Ragnar, as Danegeld, a bribe to convince the Vikings to leave. Usually the paying of the Danegeld only guaranteed a much longer visit from the Danes, but at the same time that the payment was negotiated, the Viking forces were plagued by a severe epidemic of dysentery. The disease was so severe that Ragnar's forces were more than satisfied with the Danegeld and immediately returned to their homes, hoping to recover in peace. But they did not find peace at home. When Ragnar returned to Denmark, the king of the Danes, Horik, ordered all of Ragnar's forces to be executed as a punishment for their lawless raiding. Whether Horik was really bothered by the lawlessness of their raiding, or by the competition that Ragnar's raiding posed to the crown, is a question worth asking. Ragnar and his sons, however, managed to slip away from King Horik unharmed, and began to focus their raiding away from the continent and onto the islands of Britain and Ireland. Many years later, Ragnar's little pigs landed on the shores of East Anglia, on the southeast coast of modern England. The East Anglian king, King Edmund, quickly sought peace for his kingdom from the Vikings and found it could be purchased, though its cost would be far greater than Edmund bargained for. Ragnar's sons restrained their armies from pillaging the East Anglian kingdom as long as the East Anglians supplied food and all other necessary provisions to the Viking camps, which began to swell daily with newcomers from other Viking armies hearing of this new life of ease. When the winter months arrived, a time when the Viking armies normally returned across the North Sea and left the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to recover, the great army gave no hint of leaving. Throughout the long winter, the East Anglians served the appetites of the Viking army, supplying them with food, drink, and other gifts. Then, in addition to these provisions, the Vikings demanded horses for the entire army. Though the Vikings never fought on horseback, they had learned that a mounted army had the ability to strike even deeper and more swiftly into the British countryside, where rivers did not always provide an easy path. This last demand having been met, the Vikings finally marched on in the autumn of AD 866, leaving the East Anglians wishing they had been so lucky as to have only had their villages plundered and burned. From here, the great army, now more than 5,000 strong, not counting the innumerable non-combatant members of their camp, rode north to the kingdom of Northumbria. Whether there was truth to the legend of the death of Ragnar and the burden of revenge placed on his sons, or whether the wealth of the Northumbrian kings had caught their attention, the Danes were determined that their conquest of England was to begin with the Northumbrian capital of York. The target was well selected. A commercial center that was advantageously connected to the network of roads and rivers of Northumbria, York offered quick wealth and a strategic base for further conquests. 
but even more strategic, was the date chosen for the attack. First, Ivar and Halfdan arrived in Northumbria when the kingdom was divided by a cruel civil war between King Ayla and his rival, King Osbert. Second, the Vikings launched their surprise attack on York on November 1st, All Saints' Day, a feast day of the Anglo-Saxon church, observed in great earnest. This meant that the attack came when the city was packed with the wealth of those who had come to observe the feast, as well as when the city was least prepared to defend itself, because the two warring factions were absent from the city. And the city itself, busy with preparing for the feast, was entirely distracted from thinking of its own defenses. Undefended, York quickly fell to the Viking attack. Upon hearing the news, Ayla and Osbert, recognizing how dire the situation was, quickly made peace with each other, joined their forces into one large Anglo-Saxon army, and returned to prepare for their own assault on the now Viking-held York. Their attack came several months later, on March 23rd, Palm Sunday. Initially, the battle favored the Northumbrian forces, who broke through the walls of York and engaged the Viking warriors on the narrow streets of the city. But the tide of the battle suddenly turned, and the forces of Ayla and Osbert were cut down both inside the city walls and outside as they fled. Though both Ayla and Osbert fell that day, the death of Ayla would be particularly immortalized by later Viking sagas, eager to emphasize the revenge Ragnar's sons were able to exact from the man who had executed their father. Ivar and Halfdan captured Ayla and ordered him to be ritually sacrificed to the Norse god Odin, the Viking war god who had given the victory to the Norse raiders. The particular method of sacrifice chosen for Ayla was the grisly ceremony of the Blood Eagle. Ayla was held face down on the ground while a sword chopped two gaping holes into the back of his ribcage, one on each side of his spine. Then to the cheers of the Vikings crowded around the floundering victim, his ribs were pulled back and his still-inflating lungs were seized and pulled out through the bloody holes, heaving and gurgling through the last few painful gasps of the shrieking sacrifice. Shortly after Aethelwulf married Judith, but before the royal family returned to Essex, Alfred's brother, Prince Ethelbald, had attempted to usurp the throne. The prince had announced that he refused to let his father back into Wessex and intended to rule as king in his place. Aethelwulf apparently did not take much notice of this attempted coup and returned to Wessex. Aethelbald, his bluff called, was given several shires in the west of Wessex to rule in exchange for his peaceful submission to his father. With his mother Osborne dead and his father more and more distracted, Alfred found it increasingly easier to slip through the cracks in his father's courts. Though he maintained the fondness for Anglo-Saxon poetry his mother had instilled in him, far less effort was put into his studies. In fact, it was not until the age of twelve that Alfred learned to read in his native tongue, but he was still not able to understand anything in Latin, the language in which most literary works of the time were available. In January 858, within two years of his return home, King Ethelwulf died, leaving the throne to his grasping son Ethelbald. Unfortunately, Ethelbald was not satisfied with just the throne. Shortly after he was made king of Wessex, Ethelbald took his stepmother, the 14-year-old Queen Judith, as his wife. Thinking that his marriage to Judith would bring all the Carolingian legitimacy that his father had received from having married the girl, Ethelbald was surprised to find that he had merely invoked disgust and not respect in the hearts of his subjects. Taking his father's bride for his own wife was a violation of canon law and nature itself. The rash move could have endangered his reign had he not died of disease not long after the wedding. Judith soon returned to her father in West Francia, and the power of Wessex was once again reserved for the spear side. After the death of Ethelbald in AD 860, Ethelbert, the next son in line, took the throne. 
Ethelbert now ruled over all of Wessex, as well as the northern shire of Berkshire, and the eastern subkingdoms of Kent, Surrey, Sussex, and Essex. But as was his older brothers, Ethelbert's reign was brief. By AD 865, Ethelbert was dead as well, leaving the fourth son, Ethelred, as king, and Alfred as the next in line. With the conquest of the Northumbrian capital of York, Danish rule had been thoroughly established in the north, and it was time for the Viking forces to begin expanding their empire. In AD 867, Ivar Anuba led the army south to Nottingham, the capital of the Kingdom of Mercia, the northern neighbors of Wessex. The city was quickly captured by the Viking army, who refortified it against any attempts to retake the city. The Mercian king, Burgred, appealed to Wessex for aid in ending the Danish occupation of Nottingham. The Mercian kingdom was closely allied to Wessex after King Ethelwulf's daughter, Ethelswith, married the king of Mercia in the spring of 853, in an attempt to forge a military alliance between these two kingdoms. Thus, Burgred and the new king of Wessex, Ethelred, were brothers-in-law. Ethelred quickly consented and set about raising the army of Wessex to go and battle the Danish invaders. When Ethelred and his younger brother Alfred finally arrived at Nottingham leading the battle-ready men of Wessex, however, they were frustrated to find that the Danes had withdrawn behind the city walls of Nottingham and refused to come out and fight. Many years of raiding and running had taught the Viking forces the advantage of avoiding all combat except when they were sure to be the victors. And now, even though the goal of the Vikings was no longer simply plundering but all-out conquest, they continued to use many of these old tactics. The forces of Wessex were not prepared to break through Nottingham's old Roman ramparts and its city walls. They had no choice but to settle in for a lengthy siege of the city. Unfortunately, unlike Ivar and Uba's army, the men of Wessex were not professional soldiers. This meant that though they could be counted on for fierce fighting during short and intense battles, they could not be counted on for long, protracted campaigns. These men were farmers, who had to return home to tend to their crops and livestock, and could not spare months of waiting for the Viking troops to be starved into submission by a dwindling food supply. After a very short time, the Wessex forces began to steal out of the camp secretly in order to return home. Burgred, realizing he would not be able to wait the Vikings out, reluctantly won peace for his city by bribing the raiding army to leave. This was Alfred's disappointing introduction to the bitter frustration of doing battle with the Viking raiders. Though the reputation of the Danes for ferocity in battle was well-deserved, the true skill of the Viking forces was the ability to maximize their raping, pillaging, and plundering, while minimizing the chances of facing another army on the open field of battle. Ivar and Duba led their troops past Ethelred, Alfred, and Burgred, completely unscathed, with the plundered wealth of the city on their backs. The Mercian king Burgred, though he had won back the city, had ultimately lost his authority to rule. During the following years, the Kingdom of Mercia became a thoroughfare for Viking armies, with the Mercians incapable of putting up any resistance. Alfred did find one rather significant consolation in the failed siege of Nottingham. At some point during or shortly after the siege, Alfred was betrothed to and then married a Mercian woman, Aleswith. His new bride's father was an elderman of one of the older tribes of Mercia, and her mother was from the royal line of the Mercian kingdom. She remained married to Alfred for the rest of his life, dying several years after her husband. Though Alfred said little about his relationship with his wife in his writings, his silence is in keeping with the general Anglo-Saxon austerity and does not indicate any particular coolness on Alfred's part toward his wife. 
The notions of chivalric romance and knights sick with love for beautiful maidens would not come to England for another several hundred years. Not until long after Norman rulers from Northern Europe replaced the Anglo-Saxon kings would the idea of romantic love become a prominent theme in English literature. Therefore, Alfred's silence about his marriage can't be interpreted as indifference to Aylesworth. Like all Anglo-Saxon men, he did not wish to share with the world his romantic affections for his wife. Their marriage was a fruitful one, with Aylesworth giving Alfred two sons and three daughters, in addition to other children who did not survive into adulthood. There is one story about his wedding, however. As Alfred moved from boyhood to manhood and the passions and lusts of a young man began to grip him, he became alarmed at the sudden power of these new temptations. Fearing the bondage of these lusts and the possibility of losing favor with God if he gave in to them, Alfred began the habit of going to churches very early in the morning to beg God that he might send him some sort of physical affliction that would be severe enough to curb his sinful lusts, but not so severe that it would render Alfred useless in his duties. God seemingly answered Alfred's prayers by afflicting the prince with the extremely unpleasant disease of piles. Alfred suffered from this malady for years, and after some time the affliction became more than he could take. Finally, exhausted by the pain and humiliation of his disease, Alfred prayed again that God might replace his disease with something less painful and less grotesque. After this prayer, Alfred never suffered from piles again. On the day of his marriage to Aylesworth, in the middle of the marriage feast, however, a severe and incapacitating pain struck Alfred. The affliction of piles had been replaced by a mysterious internal agony. This pain would continue to recur for the next twenty years of Alfred's life, leaving him in constant fear of its onset. In the year AD 869, the Viking army poured from York to the south once more. Marching through Mercia, which now made no attempt to stop them, the pagan army advanced on East Anglia, the site of their initial landing in Britain five years earlier. The East Anglian king, Edmund, had fed the Viking forces for an entire year and then supplied enough horses for the entire army's journey to York. Now the Vikings came to repay this favor by conquering the East Anglian kingdom entirely. The East Anglian army, unprepared for the surprise attack, was beaten easily. On November 20, 869, Edmund was taken captive by the Viking chieftains Ivar and Uba, and according to the story passed on by his sword-bearer, was tortured and executed. First the king was bound to a tree, where he was scourged and beaten. Then the Vikings shot arrows at him until he bristled like a hedgehog. Annoyed at his continued calling out to Christ, the Vikings finally beheaded him. And so, with Northumbria conquered and the kingdoms of Mercia and East Anglia crippled, the only Anglo-Saxon nation left to be subdued by the raiding Vikings was the Kingdom of Wessex. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the rest of The White Horse King, The Life of Alfred the Great by Benjamin Merkel, now on Canon Plus. Mm -hmm.